friends. Thank you for tuning in to the weekly City Church San Francisco podcast. Throughout the fall of 2020 on this podcast, we'll be taking a look through the Bible at what happened to people when things fell apart in their worlds, sort of like what many of us are experiencing right now. We're calling this fall series When Things Fall Apart because, well, things feel like they're falling apart. So let's talk about it. We invite you to lean into these stories each week to embrace the intersections where these ancient stories collide with our current collective world and our own personal lives. As always, we thank you for being a part of City Church Online through this podcast. And we invite you to join us live each Sunday at 10 a.m. on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, or Twitch. Thanks. The scripture reading today is from Exodus chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and chapter 7, verses 8 through 23. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go so that they may celebrate a festival to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should heed him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, perform a wonder, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did as the Lord had commanded. Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and they became snakes. But Aaron's staff swallowed up theirs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened, He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand by at the river bank to meet him and take in your hand the staff that was turned into a snake. Say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you to say, Let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now you have not listened. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. See, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall be turned to blood. The fish in the river shall die, the river itself shall stink, and the Egyptians shall be unable to drink water from the Nile. The Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt over its rivers, its canals and its ponds, and all its pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout the whole land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and of his officials, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the river, and all the water in the river was turned into blood, and the fish in the river died. The river stank so that the Egyptians could not drink its water and there was blood throughout the whole land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. 
So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. The Word of the Lord. Good morning, City Church San Francisco. I am preaching to you all the way from the other side of this nation in the occupied territory of the Anacostan people. Thank you so much for having me once again. This morning, we're going to be talking about what we are to do when leadership falls apart. And this topic could not be more telling, especially after watching the presidential debate this week. What a mess. Watching the whole thing was anxiety inducing. The entire election season has in fact added to this anxiety and uncertainty of the pandemic. And it's been so divisive, pitting us all against each other. And it's exhausting. And honestly, for me, it feels as though our emotions, our fears, our uncertainties, and even our lives are being exploited and politicized because of this coming election. Anyone else feel that way? And when I think about all this, I'm just not sure how I'm expected to place hope in this country's leadership for the future. The passage that we are studying today is about Moses facing up, facing up against a nation's leader, the Pharaoh. He's exploited and enslaved his fellow Hebrew people. The passage marks the start of the 10 plagues of e on Egypt. And I'm sure many of us are familiar with this story. As a child, You've heard it as a child or even as an adult, and we've become so familiar that we haven't really thought to explore them deeper. But there's so much more that's embedded in this story that has shaped the Jewish community. And it would do us well as Christians to explore it deeper too, because for too long, our Sunday school and our churches have just watered down this story, selling its key message as having hope that God provides a way out of our trials by providing a path out. Now, today in this season, we are looking for a path out of this mess, but I believe that in this story, we will learn that this path out will require something more than just a leader leading us through the Red Sea. So let's take a look at the details in this text to see how God might be speaking to us this morning through this story. So the last you heard of Moses was that he was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter and raised in the palace. One day, while walking the palace grounds, Moses witnesses a violent mistreatment of one of his countrymen by an Egyptian slave master, and in his anger, he kills him. Moses then runs away from Egypt, worried for what might happen to him. Now, in his time away from Egypt, the pharaoh eventually dies, yet the oppression persists even under a new pharaoh, and the enslaved Hebrews cry out to God for help. So God appears to Moses in a burning bush and calls him to free the Hebrew people from slavery. And there's this back and forth with Moses and, and, and God, and because he doesn't feel equipped, God sends his brother Aaron to work with him. This brings us to our scripture reading that we have read this morning. And in my wrestling with this passage, it brought up a lot of questions. Like, what's the big deal with Pharaoh keeping his slaves from partying in the desert? Or why, why are Aaron and Moses performing magic tricks with these other magicians? Why are there so many plagues? And then the biggest tension I held in this story was, why is God so violent to another nation? 
Now, before I dive into that, I'm going to talk about our, the political t- context at that time, because I think in understanding its context, we can understand why such a far-fetched story was told and understand what its purpose was. So in the ancient Near East, kings were seen as proximate to the gods. It was understood that kings knew how to please the gods. And so they, so because of that, they received favor from the gods. So everyone else to receive favor too, it was understood that they had to listen to the king and worship the king and do what he said. And this made it pretty easy for the king and any other ruling party to set up an economic system that would increase their wealth and keep them in power. So then for the people of Egypt, the wealth and the power that their nation had was because the pharaoh had favor from their gods. However, more than likely, is that this power and wealth could be attributed to a system of exploited labor that was set up over time. So literally the building of the nation of ancient Egypt was on the backs of enslaved Hebrews, increasing the wealth of Pharaoh and the nation as a whole. So when Pharaoh says to Moses and Aaron, who is Lord, who is the Lord? I do not know the Lord in response to let my people go. It makes total sense. Because one of Pharaoh's gods would have never asked him to release his slaves, not even if it was to go to have a party in the desert. And this is because the Hebrews weren't just asking to celebrate a festival. They were asking for permission to go and and hold a feast, a celebration in worship of another god. And we hear this in chapter 7, verse 16, where it says, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you to say, let my people go so that they may worship me in the the wilderness. Now, the the word worship is also the word serve. And this is also the word used in Genesis to talk about the work of humans, the work of humans in cultivating the ground and working and tilling the land. And so um, we learn in the beginning of Exodus that part of the work that the enslaved Hebrews did was in field work. So it makes total sense that the Pharaoh wouldn't, would refuse to let his slaves go and, and serve and labor elsewhere outside of his land, potentially increasing someone else's wealth. So then what ensues because of his refusal is that there's this back and forth battle between Moses and Aaron and God and the Pharaoh's magicians. And magician is a poor translation for what they do because really they were priests, much like Aaron was. Act, and, and they were acting for the Egyptian gods. So basically what we're seeing here in these passages is the beginning of a battle between gods for the ownership of the Hebrew people. Now, Aaron and Moses would perform what their God has given them power to do. And then Pharaoh's priests would go on to show that they can do the same. And in that first demonstration, Aaron's staff turns into a snake and so do Pharaoh's magicians. But Aaron's snake gobbles up the others. And this is where it gets really interesting and really exciting. Uh, Bear with me here because I'm going to turn into this total Bible geek. So the the word snake here translates uh, into Hebrew. It translates to dragon or chaos monster. So what God does here is show that with Aaron's snake, he's able to gobble up Pharaoh's snakes. And Pharaoh's snake snakes represent Pharaoh's chaos. So symbolically, what it looks like is that the God of the Hebrews can overpower the chaos and oppression by Pharaoh and his gods. And this 
is even more exciting because this foreshadows what happens later after the plagues. Now, if you can remember, Moses and his people, they escape into the wilderness by doing what? By crossing the Red Sea. And they manage to escape even with Pharaoh's soldiers chasing them because the Red Sea ends up swallowing up Pharaoh's soldiers. Now, the last time I preached, I talked about the belief that chaos monsters lived in the waters. And these are the same chaos monsters that God created in Genesis 1. So what we're seeing here is that those chaos monsters gobbled up Pharaoh's chaos, just like Aaron's snake did. And there is so much power in this already, setting up that in the end, God will win this battle. But Pharaoh doesn't change his mind about letting the, the Hebrews go. The text says that instead, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. So Aaron and Moses, they perform another trick. And we begin to see this pattern emerge that gets repeated where Moses' plea begins with the command from God, let my people go. And then is followed by a plague being sent. Then Pharaoh's priests perform another trick. But Pharaoh's heart is hardened each time. So now this first time it occurs is when Aaron and Moses turn their water supply to blood. So if you can remember, the river Nile is turned to blood. The streams, the canals, the ponds, they're all turned to blood and it reeks. Couple that with the smell of dead fish. And it's all very unpleasant. But the worst part is that none of the Egyptians are able to drink the water. So now this problem just got bigger. Because now, ordinary Egyptians that have nothing to do with, with what the Pharaoh is doing are suffering as a result of him refusing to let the Hebrew slaves go free. Now, why is this happening to the Egyptians too? Why didn't all these things just happen within the palace, within the palace walls to just Pharaoh himself? And why 10 plagues? Now, as I mentioned earlier, there was a battle between Yahweh the God of the Hebrews and Pharaoh and the Egyptian gods. And now what the, what the Hebrew people experienced in their time of slavery was so violent to their bodies and took from their humanity over the course of 400 years that what Yahweh had to do in this battle was to counter that evil by unleashing 10 plagues. And God doesn't just release plagues on just Pharaoh himself, because the hardened heart of Pharaoh doesn't just represent one person. It represented 400 years of bondage by the ancient Egyptians. The battle of the gods that we see, plague after plague, was to instill an understanding that the God of the Hebrews had sovereignty over these all these pharaohs and the evil system that they put in place over the course of 400 years. Now remember too that this story was told and retold many times before we see it in its written form. It's retold during the festival which was celebrated in the, in the desert and we know this as Passover. Now this story was retold throughout the history when the people of Israel experienced the hardened heart of the Babylonian leaders that exiled them. And they also heard these stories when they were going through the um, oppressive Roman rule. 
Each year, they told this story over and over again to remember that their God was, was the God that overthrew the gods of Pharaoh and would continue to overthrow the gods of all these other empires that oppressed them, from Egypt to Babylon and then to Rome. And so there was this need for the ancient Israelites to hear this story of this epic battle where God would meet their oppressor by the same magnitude of suffering or even 10 times greater at the very least. This battle was supposed to cement the fact that Yahweh was not a God that aligned with the hardened heart of, of leaders who were dictators that, that in, in a way that many people believed in the ancient Near East, but that Yahweh was on the side of the oppressed and would deliver them from bondage. But so then, why do the Egyptians have to suffer through each plague as well? The text here demonstrates that the ancient Egyptians would have benefited from this wealth too. They would have been complacent to these systems, having seen the suffering and not questioned it or challenged it. And so they too would have to suffer when the leadership starts to fall apart, overwhelmed by God's divine power. Today, in this nation, we can see these same oppressive systems at play under the same kind of leadership that hoards wealth and power. We hear a similar cry on our streets. And similarly, we are seeing people's hearts harden to these cries. This cry, let my people go, is similar to appeals made by black and brown people that challenge the disproportionate number of black men in prison who add to the rising prison population that have become exploited by many companies for their labor. We hear their cries to stop imprisoning refugees at the border and address the exploitation of migrant workers. These voices are crying out for the chance to live freely of these systems, to allow everyone the right to a fair wage and the right to life, the right to health care, the right to raise their families. Black and brown Christians shape their hope in liberation by these stories, knowing that a bigger, more powerful God will deliver them from the hands of evil. But what are we doing when we hear this command to let my people go? Are we joining in the cries for liberation? Or are we silently benefiting from an economic system that exploits the poor, making them poor, for the benefit of the rich getting richer? The media plays these images of people crying out, and I'm seeing our nation harden its heart after each plea. The most vulnerable of us are crying out. The voices crying out are not just the voices of black, brown, indigenous, queer, poor folks. And what we do not recognize is that the voices we are hearing is the voice of God. The voice of God is in each individual cry for liberation. What do we do? How must we respond? You must respond like Moses does in partnering with God and partnering with Aaron in this mission towards liberation. Moses was afforded a life of privilege in this story when he was saved by Pharaoh's daughter. When he got a glimpse of the suffering of his people, he didn't go to Pharaoh and try to reason with him. He ran away. Even after God called him and appointed him as a person who would lead his people out of bondage, Moses still came up with all sorts of excuses for why he couldn't. 
So God sends him Aaron, his brother, who has grown up under Egyptian oppression, unlike Moses' own privileged upbringing. And so they partner together and with God to bring down the oppressive Pharaoh and lead the Hebrews into liberation. We need to show solidarity with the oppressed by building the same kind of partnerships. We need to co-partner with God and co-partner with the communities here who bear the burden of this nation's hunger for wealth and power. Moses was doing perfectly fine, living happily married in Midian, but in being obedient to God's call to liberate the people of Israel, he was willing to step away from his comforts. He was willing to walk with his fellow Hebrews into the wilderness, knowing that this knowing that it is in in walking with the oppressed that they could all be set free. So what does co-partnership look like for us? We need to take the time to honestly reflect and take time to think of how we have benefited from this system in the U.S. And I know that, that especially right now, this country may not be benefiting many of us at all. But the way that we're suffering now, because of this pandemic, because of the environmental fires, because of the economy, because of the added stress in our lives, the suffering that we experience is multiplied if a person experiencing it is poor and is a person of color. And we can no longer rely on our failing leadership to get us through this mess. The only way that we are all going to get through this mess is if we work from the bottom up to address the issues con concerning the most vulnerable. This is what our Christian vocation calls us to do, to love God and love our neighbor. To love God and love our neighbor right now is to listen to their cries and take risks like Moses did in solidarity with our neighbor so we can all walk through the Red Sea. And we can do that by asking ourselves, how much are we willing to change about the way we live so that many more of us can receive those same benefits? How much are we willing to risk to really see the kingdom of God here on earth? Are we willing to work together in solidarity with the most vulnerable? Ada Maria Isasi Diaz writes in her book, Doing Muarista Theology, the only way we can continue to claim the centrality of love of neighbor for Christians is to redefine what it means and what it demands of us. Solidarity then becomes the new way of understanding and living out this commandment of the gospel. As we know in this story, the ancient Israelites don't suddenly come into an easy life. They spend 40 years wandering in the desert, in the wilderness, first making all sorts of mistakes as a community. But in doing so, they learn to live together by God's purpose as God intended. So it's going to be a struggle. But if we don't use this opportunity now to listen to the voice crying out, let my people go in the many ways that it is being called out in the streets, the chaos that we're experiencing right now is never going to end. Because just like the Old Testament states, leadership can change from hand to hand, and yet those systems of oppression will still continue. 
The prophets of the Old Testament had warned the people of Israel that a hierarchical economic system that exploits the poor for the benefit of the rich, making the poor poor and the rich richer, is not a sustainable system and that it will crack. The hunger for wealth by the ruling class simply cannot be sustained by the continuous exploitation of the poor. And maybe what we are seeing now is 2020's version of these 10 plagues. But if we're being critical and honest, what we're seeing now are the cracks in this unbalanced economic system set up by a failing oppressive leadership. The good news is that the Red Sea is in front of us all, and we can all get across, get across it together. We can do so knowing that God will swallow up the oppressors and their chaos. So let's make that journey together, believing that life is possible, loving God and loving neighbor exactly how God intended. Let's all partner together to create this new life on the other side. Let us pray. Dear God, I just want to name that these are anxious times. There is so much uncertainty for what will happen in four weeks, and many of us are skeptical of whoever ends up leading this nation when leadership has never been on our side. So God, as you hear the cries of the oppressed, I pray that you open our ears to their cries too. Soften our hearts that we may be moved towards actions that dismantle systems of oppression. Give us the courage and the creativity to see how new life can be made. I ask that you empower us to partner with one another where leadership has failed and create with us the kingdom that you intended. In your name we pray. Amen.